Blog Talk Radio. Analyst, 
and panelists for today. At this time, we'd like to bring in Brother Haki and welcome him to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Brother Africa. My name is Haiki Kamaka Nishoki, coming with African Awareness, and I'm into institution building. Uh, you know, uh, recently, the Orange Minutes appeared before the UN and made a horrendous speech about just how important it is in terms of global economy and all the accomplishments they have achieved, you know, uh, nationally, you know, in the United States. Uh, it was so absurd that even the UN had to laugh at it. So it seems to me that if people around the world understand the serious threat that this, the Orange Minutes uh, represents uh, to the global community, then certainly the populace in America should understand the implicit threat that he poses uh, to humanity. So it seems to me uh, we have to have institutions in terms of really, really deconstruct, really think about a lot of things that are taking place in society and to understand the implications of these changes that are vastly sweeping uh, this nation. So I think that institutions are extremely important, and people have got to get about the business of creating institutions because without that, there's no way to think effectively. And, Brother Africa, I want to thank you for having me. Thank you. Father and Brother Haki, we now bring Brother Anthony and welcome him to Africa. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists. And the listening audience, my name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, now we're bringing Sister Hattie. Sister Hattie, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, and it's always a pleasure to learn more and to share more wisdom and knowledge about our people and what's going on around us. And I am Sister Hattie, and I am founder and executive director of Women United. And we empower, support women no matter where they are on the spectrum. And it's great to be here again. Thank you, Sister Hattie. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years in 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for having me on the show. Thank you, Moses. And Father, Brother Moses, bring in Brother Zubari. Brother Zubari, welcome to Africa on the move. Peace, everybody. This is Brother Zubari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another Safer program is always an honor and privilege to serve for talentless of this nature. As usual, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. We thank you. Panelists, let's get started. Um, as always, with our first segment, what's going on in your world and the community? We'll start out with you, Brother Hackey. What's going on in your world and the community? Yeah. Um, 
first, uh, a couple of things. Um, African Awareness Association will be doing an annual Black History Education Culture Tour to Cuba. This will take place December 27th to January 3rd, 2019. We'll be going to Matanza, Trinidad, and Havana. And uh, for more information, we encourage people to contact us at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435. Or visit our website at www.aaa-cubatours.com. Again, uh, that's www.aaa-cubatours.com. And we encourage people to get in contact with us to make that trip to Cuba. Uh, the second thing in terms of the community, uh, you know, Brother Africa, one of the things is, you know, there's still some of the changes taking place. And what I find extremely um, 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 interesting is that when we look at the, not only the speed in terms of the pace of these changes taking place, we look at the kind of people who are involved in terms of shaping the policies around the country. One such institution known as the uh, Council of Foreign Relations recently had an individual who made a statement that uh, the U.S. must do a better job in terms of propaganda. He talked about the fact that not only propaganda in, in the context of the world, but propaganda specifically aimed at the U.S. citizenry. So the mere fact that you have the Council of Foreign here talking about the importance in terms of propaganda speaks values in terms of just how precarious the system really is. Uh, one of the things we talk about, the tremendous amount of money that are, that are skewed toward the powerful and the wealthy while neglecting the overwhelming number of people in society which means that it does no good in terms of overall function of the economy and inevitably leads to the decline of the overall economy. But despite it all, they persist in terms of this, this crazy notion that the ruling class can have it all at the expense of everybody else. So it seems to me that we've got to become really concerned about in terms of the kind of changes and the speed in which these changes are taking place in the society because those have very great implications for the masses of people, for humanity generally. So I say that to say that, you know, uh, institutions, again, are extremely important, and I encourage people to get about the business of institution building. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, let's see. Um, a couple of things. Um, let's see, locally, um, uh, let's see, uh the 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 New York New Jersey Cuba Sea Coalition, in conjunction with several other uh, organizations, um, uh, organized a program featuring Diaz Canel, current president of Cuba, to speak at Riverside Church on uh, Wednesday, uh, September twenty sixth. Uh, from about 8 to 10 p.m. Once again, this was held at Riverside Church, and uh, and uh, another um, highlight was a presentation by Nicholas Maduro, president of Venezuela. And for the most part, um, uh, Diaz Canel talked about the historical relationship between the people of the U.S. and the people of Cuba, and um, focus uh, somewhat on some of the changes that are going on in Cuba in order uh, to preserve uh, their uh, sovereignty. Okay. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we'll go to Sister Hattie. Sister Hattie, what's going on in your world and the community? 
Well, thank you, Brother Lee. What's going on with Women United is uh, we are supporting women and uh, our campaign now, uh, as I've mentioned a few uh, times already, is Black Women 90 and Up. We're putting together material, written, video, and otherwise, and just inviting our seniors, our elders, women 90 years old and up, so that we can really honor them with their wisdom that they have. So we're not starting over at the same place all the time. And so we're bridging that gap. So that's our that's our major campaign right now. Um, and if anybody would like to tell us about a woman who is 90 and up and the woman is willing to uh, talk with us, we're asking you to Give us a call at 202-907-3514. Or either you can email Women United at women.united7777 at gmail.com. Uh, also, we are looking at um, the Million Woman March 21 starting October the 1st through the end of the month. Dr. Filet is putting together some programs and some different types of activities and events uh, culminating at the end of the month, uh, the last weekend of October, to be in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, doing some activities around uh, the uh, Black Wax Museum. And so we want everybody to get in touch with her at... Uh, National MWM at AOL.com and uh, keep in touch with everything that's going to be going on and looking at the website. So we're going to be supporting that event and activities and starting October the 1st through the 30th, 31st of October. It's a Million Woman March activities and events. So thank you. Thank you, Sister Hattie. Father Sister Hattie, we down bring Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, the Metro D.C. Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution is a member organization of the National Network on Cuba. The National Network on Cuba is having this fall meeting and conference October 20th through 21st, 2018 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This should be a very interesting conference and uh, with members, delegates from the Cuban government there. And uh, for more information, you can contact the website at nnoc.info or call 617, no, yeah, 617-254-9070. That's 617-254-9070. The National Network on Cuba. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Father and Brother Moses, we now bring in Brother Zubari. Brother Zubari, what's going on in your world and the community? Recently, it was announced that there was a major Facebook breach where some, at least 90 million people, were notified that they need to change their account name and password because their information was. Um, able to be accessed by people. So you got to yet again wonder what is the purpose of 
them continuing to push something like social media, given how fragile it is and how easy if one was foolish enough to put confidential information on how easy it would be for people to access it because it's every year you're hearing about these social media networks having these kind of incidents happen. So it's a continuing trend and not just a blip. Let me follow up with something that Brother Jabari just said, uh, Brother Africa. Yes, you may. Interesting, because this is the thing. I'm just wondering to what extent Facebook is strategizing in terms of perpetuating this notion that, in fact, that uh, that more restraints are needed in terms of safeguarding the uh, efficacy, you know, of the the, uh, system. Uh, You know, recently they've been talking a lot about in terms of, you know, foreign powers utilizing propaganda for the sole purpose of undermining U.S. elections. Of course, it's all bogus, but what is interesting is that Facebook recently partnered with the International Republican Institution and the National Democratic Institution, both which works under the, 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 uh, under the direction of the Endowment for Democracy, which is the propaganda wing, one of the propaganda wings of the State Department. It's very, very interesting that when we talk about this breach in terms of, in terms of you know, people's, you know, people's information, to what extent does that facilitate a lot of fear, a lot of apprehension that perhaps maybe foreign powers are responsible in terms of undermining elections with use of propaganda. So I'm sort of suspicious of that. Um, but it was South Africa, brother, after one thing I want to point out real quickly. Uh, one of the things we talk about in terms of, you know, Facebook, uh, and we talk about, you know, this whole uh, impact on elections, one of the things when we go back to, to Trump's election, one of the things that nobody ever talks about is that when we talk about those elections, Hillary Clinton actually won by 3 million votes. But no one ever talks about the fact that the Electoral College appointed Trump as the now, the Electoral College in itself is an outdated concept. It's a very, very uh, tremendous amount of uh, corruption when it comes to Electoral College. So it's simply what you're talking about is organized interest deciding who becomes president of the United States. So the popular vote or the vote that people actually give to the candidates doesn't really count at all. So uh, it seems to me that a lot of this, 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 this strategizing, this engineering in terms of you know, shaping people's perception has a lot to do with, with politics as usual. And we've got to be very, very concerned about that, particularly when we talk about Facebook in terms of popularity and people's willingness to go on Facebook and actually believe a lot of stuff that they're reading and not understanding that a lot of it is disingenuous, that is not true. So I, I say that to say that, you know, uh, the mere fact that they're partnering with, uh, you know, the National Endowment of, of Democracy, the propaganda in the State Department, speaks values in terms of their real motivation. And I certainly hope people understand that a lot of stuff they read out of Facebook is, is not legitimate. I thought how can you were consistent with your first point where you made the point about how they see a necessity to propagandize the American people inside the United States. You know, have a special um they have a special um program just to, you know, create propaganda to misinform American people. I mean, if they see a need for that, um, there's no limit to in terms of what they want to. So, you know. I agree all the things you know, raised and said, and I often wonder many times when Facebook and Twitter make statements to someone else broke their account, was it really, was it not really with someone else, or was them just saying that, so they can justify giving up or giving away your information and not be have responsible. So, you know, I concur with you. But, but you know, can I add another point? Yes, go ahead, Brother Zavari. Continuing, um, but I keep mistaken about um, Facebook and propaganda. 
It has recently been confirmed and Facebook has admitted this that it has been using people's phone numbers to bombard them with advertising. Now, if we look at this whole propaganda piece, we know that one of the biggest forms of propaganda is advertising, convincing people to buy and endorse products and services they don't need. That are only for a temporary basis. So it's very interesting how Facebook um realized that since social media is a way to make money off of propaganda, they're coming up with more and more ways of um slick ways of um forcing people to endure propaganda they never opted into or never well, let me take that back. They opted into it the minute they signed for the Facebook account, but they didn't necessarily sign an agreement saying that I want to be subject to receiving it. Mm. Well, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and we come back. I would like to get some some um, some feedback from y'all on analysis that made by um, Borkin Watkins on the recent sentencing of Bill Cosby and the implication of that as it relates to our people. I want you to think about that. Let's all think about it. When we come back, we're going to have that discussion. This is Africa on the Moon. I love you. 
they are not going to let any new players into that club. And so no, no matter how hard you try, you are not going to get into that uh, into that exclusive club, which is the purview of the European bourgeoisie. And uh, that's one thing. And also, they were um, they were there were other uh, in addition to the lack of evidence, there were other irregularities. Uh, like uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, um, you know, admitting uh, you, you know claims that were supposed to be sealed by a civil agreement, and also because there there is uh, a constitutional safeguard called the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. So uh, uh, the the European that 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 Cosby had struck a plea deal with a few years ago, she reneged on it basically, and uh, you know by uh, you, uh, you, you, uh, you know the judge allowing that evidence in a criminal trial. So there were a lot of improprieties involved, and um, you know and. Um, you know, it was uh, highly publicized, and I think it speaks to uh, uh, the hypocrisy that exists in U.S. society, and that uh, you know that uh, you know whatever, uh, and uh, and it, and to the level of racism that whatever any European says carries greater weight. Than any uh, uh, than reality or any real evidence, and uh, this should be another wake up call for Africans to uh, uh, you know be uh, uh, to be very careful about who they uh, who who they, who they associate with, and how you've got to protect your interests against this sort of thing because racism. Contrary to popular myth, is very much real today. Sister Haley, your response. Well, you know, when you said Bill Cosby, my phone started acting up really uh, badly, so I had to go and change phones. So I don't know what my phone is doing over here. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> Becky. <laughs> Becky has always had the same power, particularly with non-white men. Becky's word has always carried the same theme. Not only can Becky accuse somebody of something and, and never they laid hands on her, Becky can take all of those uh, pro athletes' money take it back to her community, and they just love to give Becky their money. So I guess all I have to say is that poor Brother Bill, he had a false state of being when he felt like he was a part of the white male power structure because the white male power structure can rape, the white male power structure can do whatever they like to do. The white male power structure have no rules. 
and Bill just didn't know how to stay in his place. First of all, they were still angry at Bill for having the audacity, the nerve, to think he was going to buy a major mainstream network. I believe it was CBS, was it, at one point? NBC. NBC, thank you. So if you think you can buy a major network, Brother Bill stepped out of his place. They were still, you know, on him from that. I don't know why his son ended up dead on the highway under suspicious circumstances, but that wasn't enough. Bill continued to think he was in the – he, he continued to think his money was green like the white male power structure's money was green. And one of the things about them, when they have used you to no extent, they will definitely throw you back whenever they feel like it, even though you are a billionaire. That's why if you don't know how to stay in your place as a black man in this country, especially, you might get away with it someplace else, but I would say it's all over the world myself. So Bill just didn't know how to stay in his place, and Bill had to be the freak of the week no matter what. So when you're the freak of the week and you're a billionaire and you're not white, guess what? That's a highway to calamity right within itself. Now, if you are white and you're the freak of the week, it's okay. Freak of the year, whatever you are, just freak. You can be kind of middle, upper class, and you'll be okay if you are a white male. See, the rules and the laws in this country are made for nobody, for as I'm concerned, except certain people, and we know who those certain people are. When you ever express yourself thinking you are free even just to follow their laws, you'll be sadly mistaken because at any given point you can sit on somebody's sidewalk, step on somebody's toe, and you end up being public enemy number one and get one of those little stink bombs thrown at you. And, and, and you know, that's why our political prisoners are what they are, political prisoners. And so Bill just didn't know how to stay in his place. I think all those women that were hanging around with him knew what they were doing. What's this guy um, up right well, now? He's the white guy. Not the Supreme Court justice, the movie guy. Yes, sir. I just want to say all the people hanging around him, you know, it was proven some of these allegations, they, they, they caught these women lying and never existed. So, you know, it's just a consistency in showing that this was seen to be some kind of orchestrated plot to punish him for whatever reason. But go ahead, finish your point, Sister Eddie. Yeah, no, I, I was just gonna say the the other guy that's the the uh director in Hollywood, I mean, he was really doing some weird stuff too with the people. But but he's not even in jail. What so, is his name? Yeah, um I the can't producer, think of his name. Allen? Right yeah, Allen? the producer. No, 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 no,
thank you. I'll stop at that and give somebody else a chance to talk because I can go on about that one. Brother Hackey? Hello? Uh, I, yeah, I think there's a, there a dual standard. Does, you hear me? Yes, we can. There's a dual standard when it comes to justice in society. Uh, one of the things that's banded about, they talk about the, you know, that you know, indictment is very, very easy. In fact, you can indict a ham sandwich just as easily. So I think that this double standard, when we, when we talk about it, uh, normally in the context of money in the capitalist system, those with money uh, make the rules, and as a consequence, they are not subject to the rules. Well, when it comes to African people in America, it's a totally different ball game. In fact, one of the things I think is important people understand is we have to talk about the, the political dimensions in terms of prosecution. One of the things they want to do is set an example. They want to show African people that no matter how, how much money you have, how much status you obtain, uh, how much power you wear, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is that you know, you're, still a, uh, you're still a subject of the state. And so therefore we have no rights in which this, this system is bound to respect. And so we have to understand that. So in the context of Bill Cosby, uh, we look at the term, the, the very nefarious um, prosecution of him, then we understand that there's a clearly a critical message that's being sent, and that is that, you know, regardless of how much money you have, uh, you, you're nobody. So that's important we understand that. In the context of Becky, I think one of the things we should understand that historically, you know, if they can use white women uh, as somewhat of a battering ram in terms of undermining uh, the perception of African people, then they would do that. And so, therefore, you know, um, one of the things that, you know, we have to understand is that when we talk about this whole notion in terms of, you know, uh, you know as, as Sister had alluded to, we, when we talk about this whole notion in terms of, you know, uh, what, what, what constitutes, you know, femininity, uh, clearly that in the minds of the powerful, that femininity is, is encapsulated in the, in, in the virtues of, of white women. And so, therefore, white women are beyond reproach. And so the mere notion that he had the power and the means and the wealth to actually, uh, you know, have relationships with these, with these white women is something that doesn't set favorably with the power structure. And so, therefore, they simply want to send an example uh, of Bill Cosby. And I think that the, the overwhelming number of people will, will, in fact, get a message. The racists will see it as something as uh, justifiable, given the fact he had a relationship with white women. Uh, the poor will see it as the fact that the fact that he was wealthy and they did to the him. Well, if they can do that to him, what, what could they do to me? So I think there's a certain amount of fear they want to instill. So I think that's the thing. We have to keep in mind. Brother Jabari? Why wait for Brother Jabari, Brother Moses? You go ahead and do your thing. What you what you make up to so oh, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes we can, Yes. Um, one thing that we have to take note of is that one way in um, throughout history there has been a narrative where comments made by a woman have sometimes unfortunately been used to try to put high profile or just black people, black men in negative light in general. You have to go back as far as Emmett Till off of an accusation that his brother lost his life. We can remember in the 90s, Tupac Secure spent time in prison off of um, allegations that were never proven anything, and he had to um, serve time in prison. Kobe Bryant faced potential prison time because of accusation. Um, Mike Tyson, yet again, a situation where there were accusations that came a prominently black um, person faced the end of serving time because of accusations. So you can understand that this is a 
tactic, unfortunately, that has been used time and time again. And it even also can be seen, unfortunately, when it comes to profile black men may have to pay in terms of if there's a divorce element, the kind of child support they may have to pay versus um, some of their contemporaries. I mean, you look at these amounts, it's ridiculous just based off of what they did in their particular careers, but it's just as a means to kind of send a message, make an example out of them, unfortunately. So we've got to understand that this is not necessarily new. This is an unfortunate trend. Brother Moses, your take on it? Yes. Um, I think, you know, there is a double standard, uh, um, and you're, you're guilty until proven innocent in this situation. Uh, and uh, you know, the due process, you know, uh, was not not adequate, uh, um, the allowing uh, sealed documents to be to be opened up and again, uh, it's a discrepancy. Uh, and you know, it is an attempt to to make an example out of out of a, a African American uh, uh, and to, to show people that. That uh, they are vulnerable in, in society, and that you know, like Sister Hattie saying, he's out of his place, etc. Uh, I'm I'm not gonna go on. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Yeah, well, I think one of the key points he raises in his analysis, and we all talk about it too, is just the notion that you don't even have to have no proof. They are convicting people with but no proof at all. I think recently there was a case in the NFL, I believe it was a Dallas Cowboy football player, where there was Becky. Becky made a public statement. Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Elliott, right, football player, played with Dallas Cowboy running back. Um, Becky told him that she can say whatever she wanted to say and destroy his whole career. And that was public record. And he still ended up getting suspended. After she had displayed an attitude of saying that, you know, what I'm going about to say or will say will not be based upon any kind of truth. But she recognized the power that she could weigh over African men just by saying whatever she wanted to say. So, you know, I guess the more of the story is, for me, uh, panelists, I'm just trying to figure out at what point do we come to realize that the freedom of our people cannot be based upon the issue of money. Money will not make you wealthy. Will not make you free. Um, if they can do that, billionaire will be a cause. And why are we still running behind and saying money is the solution to our problems? In the here's context. a question. Let's go Brother Africa, when you talk about um, prominent um, entertainers who have engaged in sexual misconduct. Um, Charlie Sheen of the Estevez family knowingly had HIV, and there's several um, people he had intercourse with, and there was no kind of repercussion. The only thing was a headline came out that he did that, but there was no kind of repercussion for his action, and that is an illegal act. That's on the law, on the record. You can find that and see it for yourself. This isn't hyperbole I'm speaking. And to add to your point also, Barry, what about these Catholic priests that continually rape these young kids and no one go to jail? And where's the public um, where's the public at with that? Yes, go ahead, Anthony. No, I want to add. Uh, well, to respond to your point briefly, 
what a lot of what happens in a lot of times is that they end up losing their position or getting transferred to another location. But I want to deal with something uh, that Bill Cosby never understood, apparently. Hopefully, he might have learned that lesson now. But, you know, but, you, uh, but, but no matter how much money you manage to accumulate, how much wealth you accumulate in this society, because Africans are engaged in a nation-class struggle, you cannot get, uh, get uh, escape from, uh, uh, from the fact that you're an African. At the end of the day, no matter how much you know money you've accumulated, and uh, one of the things I'm reminded of is how Bill Cosby, at the height of his career, which was back going back to the 2004-2005, when he disparaged poor and working class Africans that were trying to reconnect with their African heritage. I mean, we've used different methods over the years. Uh, uh, Some Africans have uh, changed their religion. Uh, Some have adopted African names. Uh, Some have started wearing African attire. You know, know, various methods. Well, um, he disparaged that uh, at at a public event. I think it was an NAAA. CP Image Awards program back in 2004, and he was applauded, uh, you know, by the Europeans for doing that, uh, as well as uh, you know some of the other uh, you know uh, you know African petty bourgeoisie who have contempt for poor and working class Africans uh, generally. Well, Bill Cosby, for a period of time, was the mouthpiece for that group. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I think, and I think, you know, people need, uh, need a re- we need to be reminded that your wealth, the, uh, the, in spite of your wealth, you cannot escape the fate that befalls African people generally. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates being arrested at his own uh, for trying to get into his own house is a case in point. Another example. Henry Louis Gates, not Bill. But you know, Brother Africa, the, the problem in terms of money, uh, you know, when people see money as a solution to our, our predicament, uh, they, they totally miss the boat. Uh, one of the things Money can be given; it can be taken away, and, and that's and that's very very real, axiom. So I think that uh, we have to begin to understand that fundamentally our struggle has to be the whole the evisceration, the destruction of this system across the board. It has to be. No amount of money is going to change the injustices that inflict African people specifically or humanity generally. So we're talking about the the we talk about not the, the demolition of the system. We're talking about the total destruction of the system. Anything short of that, you know, you're fooling yourself. So for those people who think, and those, those, middle, those middle-income Africans who think that, in fact, accumulation of money is a solution, then all you have to do is look at our history. I mean, money has never been an issue. Even right now, if, in fact, the wealth exists in the African community, we have, if you pull all the African wealth in the United States, it rivals the, the wealth of, of most African states, you know, both in the Eastern and Western Hemisphere. So this notion that, in fact, money is, is a solution is, is, is bogus. But, again, 
when people when people identify with the class argument, when they start thinking that money or things define who you are, and once they buy into that, then we can understand why they would support the system and think the solution is in perpetuating the system. Even though the system seeks to destroy you, even though the system understandably is designed in terms of is, is a is a uh, it's a system which you know increasingly fewer and fewer people capture all the gains, and which means that inevitably, even those people who are well off at this point doesn't mean in 20, 15, 10, 15, 20 years that they will be well off given the way the system is structured. So we understand that fundamentally that the the, the, the problem is that you know. Uh, people have to come to the realization that we have to ch- fundamentally change the system. I'm not talking about reform. I'm talking about destroy it because we're having a choice. Uh, and, and that's just my view, and I'll close with that. And, you yeah, know, I, I wanted have... to just to go back. Uh-oh, go on. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say, well, I think it was Brother Anthony, you were talking a little bit ago, and you talked about, uh, you know, the the class piece of it and, and him disparaging those individuals that were, you know, trying to reconnect. And I just wanted to add that um, that is what I mean when I say they use people to do things like that, or even if it's on a job uh, and they'll bring in someone to uh, get rid of somebody uh, who's black so that if white, you know, if a white did it, it would be construed, misconstrued as being um, racist. (laughs) But bottom line is, and, and let's just take a look at, Wilson Good put in and, 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 and murdering the move family members there in Philadelphia. And those are the kinds of moves that people will put themselves into to to be held in high esteem, as we all know of those whites are that are in charge. But bottom line, when Bill uh, Cosby allowed himself to be used and some things like that, and then talking about, I think he made comments also in, about men in Chicago and fathering. Well, yeah, you do need to be a good father or parent for your child. But at the same time, are you going to dismiss what's happened to the black man from the very beginning, uh, being used as, uh, you know, all the slave tactics and what have you? And so when people do that, there are some consequences for it. And so I don't think Bill took all of that. You know, he just got so, so far away from from the the black people period, and then there was a whole class thing. So he had two levels of disconnect from the people, and I think they've already said with him going into the state penitentiary there, rather than where the rich people go, it's gonna present a problem for him because he's already fallen down the steps. Someone threw a hot dog bun at him, and he fell down the step steps supposedly. So I don't know if he hurt himself or anything, but an 81 year old falling down steps is not a good Good thing. Hold on for a second, Hockey. We have a caller been waiting for a while. Let's take this caller, then we'll come back. We're gonna take this caller, caller O two four six, caller O two four six. Your question or comment, please. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Greetings, family. This is Sister Angela calling from Cleveland. How's everybody Hello. doing this evening? How are you? Good. How are you doing, sister? Great, wonderful. Thank you. Um, I didn't. I haven't been in the whole time, but I know we're talking about Bill Cosby, and I just wanted to, you know, make a comment on some of the things that were said. Um, I guess I've I heard, you know, I've heard you all say that, um, you know, having money is not an answer, you know, that 
I think it was said that the complete destruction of the system, you know, basically is the only answer. And so I wanted to challenge that just a little bit with my thoughts. Um, I really do think that, you know, financial unity in the black community is a very strong tool that can help us progress towards liberation. I think that um, when we talk about money, we have to look at it from an individual versus collective point of view. Any one individual with a lot of money may not make a difference, although in the case of Bill Cosby, for all of the negative energy and all the negative outcomes that have happened with him, we can't negate the fact that he uh, granted the opportunity for a lot of black young people to go to university and, you know, receive higher education. Um, He also, you know, used his money um, to create a platform for a lot of black actors and actresses that later on went to be able to be um, self-sufficient and earn their own money and, you know, have blossoming careers. So the fact that he had, he did, you know, use his money and use his platform to elevate or open the doors for some other people um, that, you know, can't be dismissed as part of his history. Um, I think that, you know, money has to be used as a tool. Um, It's not the be-all and end-all, but it definitely is needed in our society. And even when we're looking at our position as black people, um, you know, in this this, um, environment of warfare, you have to have tools. And so the more... Uh, resources that we have or we allocate them correctly, the more tools we have, the more that we're able to build and whatever that may be, if that means being um, prepared for an emergency or if that means getting your passport or if that means building you, you know, a home abroad or being able to transport or if you need to have security. I mean, you have to have money to be able to move the needle, even with our programming. If we want to push this particular narrative, Africa on the move, and this conversation out, Further than, you know, the listenership, we would need to be able to have some money to, you know, execute it and send it further across platforms. And so I think when we have money collectively and not maybe in and of itself because I guess having currency or having resources, money is just one of them. Um, But we do have to have mechanisms of trade that enable us to get our agenda you know, come into fruition and make it materialize. And so I think that, you know, having resources, having dollars helps us to be able to navigate a system that we don't own. We're in it. We don't own it, but we still have to work our way through it um, until we get to a place that we're able to, you know, completely uh, destroy it. So I just wanted to bring forth those thoughts because, you know, I'm an advocate of – financial unity for the global black community. And I think that we have to pool our resources together in order to progress and move our struggle forward. So thank you. I yield the floor. Sister Angela, I'll let my panelists weigh on your some of the statements you made. But normally not you per se, but in general, when people talk about and view money as being the major tool that is, that is keeping us from being free. Many times, for me, and my understanding is, I think they're talking about it in the context of they're allowing their economics to control their politics. And if we allow our economics to control our politics, then we are in serious trouble because we are living in a system that doesn't allow us to have the kind of capital to compete with the capital that is already in existence. 
when I raise the issue about this question of money is not the solution to our problem, I'm talking about in 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 the sense of making me free politically and politically speaking. Politically our economics should be controlled by our politics. And not the other way around. We function as if our economics control our politics and that's the arrow that we are making. And like you said, like anything else, money is a tool. It's a tool that you can use. But it don't necessarily have to be the only tool. There are other ways how people can organize themselves to create economies. For example, we're looking at our brothers and sisters today in Venezuela, even in other places. They realize the type of money they're using today, called the U.S. dollar, is a tool that they, not, that they do not need to be using because it's a part of their oppression. So they are coming up with other alternatives and not using that tool. So I'm just saying there are all kinds of things we could do with and without that particular tool that we know as money to help us arrive at a close realization of freeing our people here and abroad. And that's where we have to begin to think. We can't start off thinking conceptualized in order to be free. We need money. No, that's 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 not true. Money is a construct. Matter of fact, in Kuwait, when Iraq and Kuwait went into war, those folks were millionaires in less than 12 hours. They became poor overnight. But they had the same currency. What made them become poor overnight? Or even though they had the same currency? What happens? It's a construct. All what you buy into. So anyway, that's just my general comments. Panelists, you heard the system made a statement. Y'all can speak to it. Anyone would like to speak to? Yeah, let me one? let me take, let me start off. Yeah. Let me start off. I think the sister was was was, was responding to something I said. Let us start off with discussion by just opposing two forces: one politics and one economics. We have in, in between politics and economics, we have to prioritize. So this is the thing: when you prioritize, one becomes the catalyst and the other become subservient to the catalyst. If, in fact, we come to a position that economics is primary, that is the primary motivating catalyst in terms of change, the problem is that if I'm a businessman and you support me and I get the money, then what incentive do I have to support you? I got what I need. This one who's in the game is about the money. I got the money. So why would I care about your suffering? I wouldn't. This is the problem. So in terms of catalyst, what we have to understand is that we have to talk about the policies, the understanding of the world in which we live in. Brother Lee articulated about Venezuela in terms of cryptocurrency, in terms of how it's getting around the dollar. Not only Venezuela, but China, Russia, Iran, even some European nations are in discussion in terms of getting rid of the dollar. So therefore, when Brother Lee talks about Brother Africa talks about the fact that it's a construct, that's precisely what it is. What's preventing the African community from creating its own wealth? There's something in the world other than understanding. We can create something other than the dollar in terms of facilitating, uh, facilitating uh, uh, getting things done without the dollar. So we've got to be very, very careful about, you know, lionizing this dollar and thinking that it is, in fact, the, the solution to our problems, because it's not. If, in fact, the dollar was the solution to our problem, then Bill Costa had enough money, in fact, indeed, to get himself out of it. To give you another example, there was a community in Brooklyn called uh, the Ansarlah community, self, self, self-contained. I mean, brothers and sisters controlled everything. The, the buildings, the, the stores, the restaurants, they controlled everything. It was self-contained. Well, they became something too powerful, and the forces that be marshaled their forces together to ensure to destroy the Ansarlah community. So if money was the solution, the Ansarlah should have had enough resources in terms of combating what happened to them, but they couldn't because 
because the money only has limited in term, limited uh, uh, impact in terms of your ability, in terms of actually putting off the inevitable. So when these people come at you, these people or forces who, who in fact control the money, when they come at you, then in ter- if, if money is the solution, then understand that they got more of it. And so therefore you can't reasonably expect to compete against people who got more of it if in fact the rules of the game is all about money. So we have to change the way we think. This is important. This is why a lot of people don't get it. Uh, they, they think that money is, in fact, the solution. I understand you, you're caught up in that paradigm which says that, you know, the only way to visually see the world is the way, you know, the Western world sees, see the world. But, in fact, you go back to history and look at it in terms of even Africa, traditional African society. They use other currencies as means of other kinds of things as, use, as means of currency in terms of facilitate trade. It doesn't have to be a piece of paper. It can be a shell. It can be beads. It can be in a number of things. It can be cryptocurrency. It can be a number of things in terms of doing that. Well, you have to have the knowledge and understand in terms of why and what you're doing. And that is what we fundamentally like. We like the politics, not economics. As I alluded to before, when you talk about economics in terms of African community, if we put our resources, we're like the eighth biggest economy on this planet. But you know what we like? We like, we like understanding that. We like politics. And so, therefore, we don't know what to do with the money. So if I gave every African in society today a million dollars, you know what? That million dollars will go right back to the powers that be. Simply because we don't have an adequate understanding of the politics or the system in which we have to we have to deal with. But I told you better let someone else get a chance to speak. Could I add to that? To, to that go uh, ahead, for, for Mike that? Is sure. Mike is uh I would add that what we lack is organization. We are di- a very disorganized people. That is why we can't retain resources like money or anything else within our community. We, uh, we, uh, we uh, our enemies are very well organized. The only way we can defeat them is we have to be organized ourselves. And when we're organized, we can actually use things like uh, money or any other resource as a tool uh, to control our own society. But we're not at that stage at this point. As Matt, uh, the, the, uh, the closest we come to that is certain sovereign states in the Caribbean and Africa. But for the most part, we're disorganized everywhere in the world. So we uh so the key is political education and organization. And uh so the uh, so so the solution is ultimately uh political and, and ideological. Ideological being the way you think about uh uh your relationship among among in the world and among ourselves. And uh, the politics governs how we relate. And once those are in place, then we can actually take control of that, uh, you know, X amount of billions of dollars that flow through our community like a sieve. Because ultimately, we don't control any land, not even our homeland Africa. And that is why we don't control the resources that flow through our community, because we don't control our land base. Every people in uh, in the world has a land base. 
the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere face a similar problem. They don't control their land. Therefore, they cannot make the resources of that land work for them. Can I um, respond? Of course you can. Okay. The mic is yours. Thank you. I do agree with the point that our politics should control our economics and not the other way around. I do agree with that because that, you know, makes sense. Whatever our political um, position or political ideology is, of course, that is what our money should fund, and that is how we should actually spend our money. Um, You know, the example that, you know, Venezuela, I think it was China, um, I don't know if you all mentioned Russia, as other economies that are de-plugging from the actual dollar and finding ways to create economic activity within those societies without dependency on the dollar, that point is taken. I think the difference with, you know, Africans that are here in America is that we're in the we're not in the geography of our own. And so um, for us to trade in a currency other than the one in which our, you know, lives are totally integrated, you know, to me it, it would seem a little bit more difficult than those countries that were cited as an example because at least they are separated um you know, and together geographically where, you know, in our case, we are not. But um, with, I wanted to go back to Bill Cosby in terms of how his money could have worked for him. The reason his money didn't work for him is because his politics didn't come over his, you know, his politics didn't rule over, you know, maybe his fact that he had money. If he, you know, had his security in mind, and he had his politics in place, then he probably would have, you know, bought himself a DA or bought himself a judge over wherever he lived at, just like um, I can't think of the other guy. The other guy bought himself. He's been charged, a white man. He's been charged, uh, one of the media guys up in Maryland. I have to get his name, Jay Nunez or something like that. But, you know, had he took his money and because politicians – get in office because they get sponsored and they get endorsed and they get they fundraise and they get checks. And once they get those checks, they have an allegiance to the person who wrote the check, as we saw with Obama. So, you know, Bill Cosby would have put his politics first and his, you know, personal um, well-being, then he would have been smart enough to do that and his money maybe would have worked for him and maybe would have kept him um, out of jail. But, of course, that's not where his mindset was. So I definitely agree that our politics should drive our economics, not the other way around. And I definitely agree that we do have a lack of organization. And, um, you know, that's something that we're, work, we're all working to do, um, yeah, generationally and otherwise. So thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Let me just say something to add to that. The argument, let me say real, real quickly, Sister Hattie, if you mind, if you don't mind. The question around geography, uh, let, let's be careful about that, that argument. Okay, keep in mind, if you won't get down to the nuts and bolts of it all, we are a colonized people. We are, in fact, an independent nation. And that's not rhetoric. That's the reality in terms of socioeconomically. When you look at all the indicators in terms of well-being in society, we're continually grouped at the bottom, as a group. Not as, you know, not as individuals, but as a group. So therefore, objectively speaking, politically, we are in fact a, a, a nation, and this is the thing we have to understand. So it's important that we begin to understand that and think as a nation, 
And I know that's a bit much. Most people say, like, no, 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 I'm American. Uh, are you going a bit too far when you start talking about, you know. And, you know, it's not, and what I'm, uh, what I'm espousing is not a political line. It's, in fact, objective political reality in terms of the concrete conditions of asking people in the society, you know, uh, the, the, the commonality in terms of our struggles and, and the problems that we are confronted with suggest that, you know, that we're not part of the larger society. So if that being said, then in terms of forming, you know, strategies in terms of ensuring that we get what we need by creating, you know, ways of exchange or bartering, uh, no such imagination is discounted simply because of geographical concerns. And I'll close with that and sit ahead of you. Go ahead. Right. All I just wanted to add, too, is that we, where we are right now in the whole scheme of things, we are in this system of this money system. It has not been torn down or alleviated. Perhaps that's what needs to happen. Um, and I know in the past we've kind of talked about that, and I don't know that um, we can't live in some kind of a, a manner where it is a balance. But that being said, I, I think just like Sister Angela is saying is that the dollars and the money system is here where we are now, and we do need to have some resources in order to where we are, where things stand right now this day in 2018, to definitely – make some things happen, but it's where that money comes from is a key, number one. If it's not coming from someplace that's that's going to be from ourselves and we make those different decisions that are going to enhance our being more independent, it's it's going to be for naught. And so I say that to say this. The other pieces that we – where is this – prioritization of money on the whole scheme of things in our lives, like you all have been saying, it's what, what is, is, is this money above the people or your politics or how you use your money? It's where you value it at. Are you a greedy person? Or are you a person who, who tries to pull together and, and put some things together to help the whole community? And so all those things I think are important. How do we prioritize the money? And if you ask me, the missing piece is not the money piece, and we talk about being socialized, the things that kills us off more than likely. And even uh, you look at Black Wall Street, what was it? A bomb dropped on you. Look at Move, a bomb dropped on them. Justice system is what destroys you, or an army, any kind of battle, war. I mean, I'm not talking about war games. I'm just talking about plain old uh, they'll come up to you and tell you we will kill you as a whole country. You look at the African countries that have been colonized. You look at people here. People are afraid to do certain things for their own, uh, you know, existence. And so we're looking at basically the justice system and an army. We don't have an army. We can't defend ourselves against all of this high-tech, uh, even just like, people going out to protest, you know, you got the supersonic thing. And I think people talk, is an article on there today, similar, but you got this where you can, they'll bust your eardrums out just because you're out protesting. And so all of these things that cause you to become deaf, you know, and so they got all these different war type equipment to use on people. And um, we don't have anything like that. So we don't have an army. 
If he if it's not the army, the justice system Sister Hattie, will destroy can you. Can I, can I ask you one thing, Sister mm-hmm. Hattie? Can I ask yeah. you one thing in terms of that last point you're raising? Yeah. When you look yeah. at the concept of war and look at the historically how wars have been won and fought over, what ultimately dictates the victory of the people? Is it the nature of the technology they have or the will and the strength of the people? Well, I think back when there was none of these uh, certain types of wars now where you have drones that can follow you and blast you away, I think it was the will of the people, too. But it's a little bit different different kind of war games now. And the technology is here now, and it, it's different. Well, let me just say, Sister Hattie, I want you to get off the Sister Hattie, let me just say this, Brother Africa. Let me just say this. Sister Hattie. When you, if you get the opportunity, go back and look at the film, The Bad of Algiers. Okay, that answer your question in terms of your concerns. Um, look at what? The, the Battle of Algiers. The Battle of oh. Ag- Algiers. Go see the check oh, okay, film out if you get up. Mhm. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, the this, 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 this second thing, um, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, no. Let me, let me, let me, let me not beat a dead horse. I just, I just turn the mic over to somebody else. <laughs> let me just say, let me say this to you, Hattie, Sister Hattie. Mm-hmm. When people are engaged in war warfare, even regardless of the of, of, of the of the tools that are being used, just like the enemy create tools to oppress you and kill you, you don't think the opposition, those who are being pressed and being killed, will not create conditions? to learn how to defend themselves, irregardless of what tools to may come to existence. That's what the struggle and the battle is all about. And conditions create creativity. Conditions create the things that you need to, to create in order for you to uh, exist and sustain yourself. So I'm not pessimistic because, you know, one got all of these so-called sophisticated uh, um, tools. Because just like they create those tools, man can create tools to counteract them. So my thing is, is I think if you look at his writing and people, if the people got the will to find a way, if they got the will to want to be free, they will find a way. I got a second question. I got a second question in terms of piggyback on what Brother Brother Lee is saying. Now it's forces to the sisters. Now what do you do if if is so essential part of the equation? When we look at the, the overall economy and we look at the wages declining, we look at the rapid rise in unemployment, and we look at uh, the general uh, hopelessness that pervades the society, what are people supposed to do? Under those circumstances, what do you think they should do? Right, so supposed to the sisters. Can you repeat the question? Sure. A very simple question. If money is, in fact, a, a pivotal part of the equation, my access is this. When we look at the social economic indicators in society, we look at climate wages, wages going down. We look at unemployment rising. Uh, we look at in terms of automation, replacing people in terms of work, even the situation where corporations are taking jobs abroad. So all of these tend to have a, a devastating impact on the well-being of the citizenry in America. So my question to, to you ladies, given those realities, what are people to do? Remember, they won't have any money, so what are they going to do? What do you think they should do? I'd like to respond to that first. Um, 
Ambassador Arakana, I can't pronounce her last name. She proposed a solution, and then I'll give you what you know what I think are some solutions. Uh, one of the solutions she's uh, advocating for is for Black folks to each take take ten dollars um, every month for a year um, and just put it into you know one credit union of, that we all collectively agree to do that. Um, so if there is 30 or 40 million of us to get a million of us or 10 million of us to put $10 a month, I think we can afford $10 a month because we might spend that on cigarettes, Hennessy, going out to Applebee's or whatever. So to me, $10, even if you get a welfare check or food stamps, you can afford $10 a month. So to me, that's immaterial to someone's overall budget. Um, you know, if we put $10 a month, then uh, I think it comes up to $1.2 billion uh, for a year. And then what she was proposing is at that point, because her charge is to organize the diaspora, and, of course, the diaspora is not organized, uh, uh, except for some of the places that you all cited, like the Caribbean from a regional basis and some of the regional states um, in Africa, but, you know, us in America and, you know, other parts of the diaspora are not really organized. And so that will give us a leverage. If we have a $1.2 billion account that has African diaspora on it, then that gives us a seat at the table where she is proposing to go to the AU and let's do business. So that's at those very high governmental, you know, government-to-government type levels where she's proposing $10 a month you know, 10 million people, um, for what for, for 12 months, we reached $1.2 billion. So that's a tangible if we bought into it. Um, my approach is more grassroots and less Angela, dealing with government. Can I, yes. Angela, can I, I say something for yes. a second? You can continue your thoughts. I have serious problems with that program and that suggestion. I have real serious problems with that. And it, it's a okay. kid I mean, I'm not problem. Fair. It has all kinds of flaws. It has all kinds of flaws and danger. Have you seen one trick before? You'll see it, you know, you'll see it again. And this advocation, this, this advocacy about developing this black capitalism and stuff, it's not the solution to our, to, to our people. It's not the solution to you know, for our people. You know, that, that, that model that you just described, it got all kinds of serious issues and problems. But I'll let you finish your point. I just want to let you know, at least for right now on record, and we can discuss it later, the contradiction and the, and the danger that, that model you just raised, that sister raising. You will never get me to go down that road, not starting at the point right there that you just articulated by the sister. But go ahead and finish your other point. Okay, thank you. I'm not saying if it's right or wrong or will be ineffective or ineffective, but I'm just trying to address uh, the brother in terms of a practicum. And I guess at in the least, the only thing we would lose as individuals is $120. So is $120 worth an effort to, you know, do something? I mean, by my estimation, $120 is worth it. But um, what I would propose on the grassroots level um, is for us on the grassroots here to connect uh, with those grassroots initiatives on the continent. And I can name a few that's actually happening. Um, There's a group called the Ledge Group. Um, they're already uh, securing land and moving machinery and producing watermelons and onions and coffee and bringing it back. Um, and it's, it's not a large group. It's, a, you know, a fairly small group, but they've got going, and um, they've um, secured property for real estate and agricultural development. So that's grassroots to grassroots. 
Um, and then there's um, some other brothers that I can name um, that are making trips to the continent and working with the people on the ground over there. So those are smaller initiatives, you know, that we can get get behind to buy black. Um, if we want to invest, you know, back home and try to help them develop, and also, you know, the growth projections for the continent are huge. I mean, they're saying that, you know, a lot of the industries are only less than 1% tapped, some are 10% tapped. So if you're looking at it from an entrepreneurial perspective and or, you know, a political perspective, you know, that could be a win-win situation. Um, and then just looking at us here, I think practically here we could measure, we could at least try to start measuring how much money we're spending with each other, you know, um, spend with each other and measure it and, um you know, communicate it so that we can gain some momentum with just recirculating uh, currency or either we're bartering services or, you know, trading currency, just simply supporting um, another black-owned independent business. Or if you have money, investing in one. Or if you have time, volunteering in one. So, um, I mean, those are kind of the three things that I would, you know, just immediately recommend that we can do. I know, like, for example, uh, LeBron James just put money behind the school, which is going to help black children. But, I mean, it's, and I think it has a black principal, but it's still kind of a state and publicly owned school. You know, I think it's a charter school or something. It's not necessarily black owned, but but the money that he has, you know, to support um, a Dr. Umar school would have been great, you know. So, um, or to have partnered with him or whatever have you with a, a straight, uh, black agenda, you know, would be great. So just leveraging those that have with those that have vision. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a whole range of things that we can do on a practical basis. I don't think it's a matter of us not having. It's a matter of how we allocate what we do have. Hmm. Uh, folks, and Father, we'd like to give Brother Jabari or Moses. Y'all have any thoughts that y'all like to share with us based upon this conversation? Moses, Jabari? When it comes to money, money is a tool, but the priority has to be about whether you rank money in terms of its contribution towards um, us progressing forward. Because if you assume that money is the only solution, you got to understand at some point the money runs out, then what happens? But the ultimate goal has to always be about what is going to best represent what humanity needs in terms of pulling resources together for the greater good. So those who have resource money, use it to the best of their ability. That's what I would advocate them to do, not to just say they only need to be used for certain segments of society, which is what happens far too often. Brother Moses, any thoughts? Feedback, what you hear so far? Yeah, well, the role of money uh, in in society is is the is the the real essential issue of of, of socialism and and the need for scientific socialism. Uh, we have to keep politics in command because politics determines economics, always has and always will. So whether we recognize it or not, it is it is politics uh, that is determining, you know, a situation, uh, as we call so putting so-called economics in terms of in in uh, in place. Uh, and prioritizing economics over politics is that's a form of po- politics itself, 
and so uh, um, we must must uh, keep the needs of people in in our priority, uh, as, and use money as a as a instrument to uh, satisfy the needs of people. Uh, and uh, the vast majority of people, and think of the interest of the majority as opposed to the handful of the one percent. Uh, um, you know, this in Cuba and Venezuela, uh, um, they, they they that's the struggle uh, to to keep the needs of the people in the forefront and the and the use use the money and the resources. Uh, equitably to distribute the the resources to the people. Uh, the government must keep politics in command, uh, and uh, this is you know this is the whole issue. Uh, this is the issue in a nutshell, and uh, you know how we handle it determines our future. Thank you. You know, for those who want to talk about economic models and institutions, I think it would serve our people better if we would start with the political arena first. Seek the political unification, and then we can talk about the economic unification that follows. Um, I'm just real curious in terms of those who are on the phone. If we look at the conditions of our people, and we ask ourselves, how can we organize ourselves collectively where we can discuss and create these kind of things that we're talking about? It would seem to me that the political unity will be more important first and foremost before we can jump into the economic unity. And I'm saying that in reference to maybe our first thought should be, won't we look at and, be, and, and become active participants with the various political organizations that exist in, in, in our communities? Start that route first, and I think we'll have a lot more ease, uh, smoother road of being able to make this transfer into talking about building economic unity, building um, a society where we can be uh, a free and liberated people. The one of the biggest problems I see among our people is 90% of our people don't belong to no political organization. If you look at any society, you look at any kind of people, those who are free and those who are organized, they have some kind of political party or some kind of entity that guide and direct their images and thoughts and ideals. How are we going to function out operating in some form of some, some form of, a, of, of an organization? And at this point, one of the highest expression of the, of the collective will of the people is through a political party. So let's fight for a party that will do these things. And we have a history, we have a legacy that has been laid down to us. The question becomes... If we don't agree with it, why? Show us another example. Or if we do agree with it, let's act upon it. And Kruman said it clearly. The liberation and unification of Africa will be the foundation that will allow all African people free. We need a political party that's capable of organizing to collect the energies of our people and directing our people. Seek the political kingdoms first. If we agree with that, let's do it. If we don't, tell us why and show us a better way. So I'm arguing for political unification first. And then that will allow us, when we start talking about resources and how to allocate it and why we're doing it and what the end results will be at, we look like, we'll be in a better position to be willing to um, do buy into the plan. 
Because anyone who talks about economic development but don't talk about the politics of it first is a trickster in my book uh, based upon my understanding of our history. And we got to be real careful with that. Can I um, say something about that? Of course you can. That's why I'm here. This Well, I guess I will have to have clarification on what is a political organization. On our radio program earlier today, we were talking, uh, the simple question came up, uh, why do a lot of people don't vote? Because when you talk to a lot Mm -hmm. of people about politics, they talk about voting and not voting. So we almost can't even come into agreement on if we should even vote because a lot of there's one position that says don't vote because this is not our system and it needs to be destroyed. It's not going to work for us. It's working exactly how it was intended for the white supremacists, for the old man, white man game, period. You know, you can't impact that at a federal level because popular vote doesn't count. That's for college, okay, try to engage in state and local politics. You know, that may or may not be effective and, um, you know, so a lot of people are disengaged and disillusioned at it. And even when you do put people in political office, our agenda is not pushed because we're not writing no checks like other groups are. That's where the money comes in behind the politics. So you got a group of folks, young folks, some are in a conscious community that are highly intellectual, that they don't even subscribe to participating in the system. Then you have the other side of the argument that says, well, you know, our ancestors died, we have a civic duty, and we need to be involved in this process you know, to make change and, you know, people are really believing they're going to be, a, there's going to be a blue wave or a black wave in these midterm elections. And so there's a lot of discussion on, you know, both sides of the argument on why we should or should not vote. And so when you say affiliate with a political organization, you know, to me the reality is we can't even galvanize or organize enough to agree if we want to participate in the system or not let alone trying to create something from scratch. But what I did see impact is when uh, black folks got loud enough at the system, I don't know if it was uh, Minister Farrakhan or some other drivers of young black men getting murdered, where they said we're not doing Black Friday, we're not doing Christmas. And I promise you a whole bunch of sales were down, and I think 200 or something Walmarts closed that year because a lot of black people, not all, but just enough, withdrew financially from that system to make an impact. Even with the NFL, uh, their ratings and viewership has been down. And I dare to say that's because a lot of black folks turned off their television. And so my point in terms of, of that, and that it was a political action, but it also kind of hits the bottom line of people who are expecting that viewership. So I still see... I feel, you know, I see kind of like financial impact being more impactful than the political side in terms of an immediate, tangible, and what's happening in 2018. And then I look at people, they're like, why do I need to vote? I ain't worried about picking none of these politicians. I ain't got no money. I'm trying to feed my children. I got to take my children to school, try to keep the lights on. You, you want my vote for what? So that, you know, I'll vote for you and then you're gone. And what is that helping me? So a lot of people are, you know, contained into their individual situation of struggling, trying to make it, trying to do their day-to-day, trying to figure out how they're going to take care of their families. And a lot of that is a financial pressure. So they're not even worried about being in the organization. They're worried about trying to keep their lights and gas and water on. So, I mean, I do hear that we should organize politically first before we even think about governing finances. But I just, you know, just challenge that with the reality of what's happening on the ground right now. Particularly with the younger generation. Could um, 
could I could I respond to what you were just said? Um, I, and I I, 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 I I follow what you're saying, and um, you know I think what some of us are saying is that we need to form our own independent political organizations. Now, we may not necessarily agree exactly on the form that we take, which is why I use, the, uh, use organizations, plural. But we have to form our own. The Democratic and Republican parties, if you look at their history uh, in the world and inside the U.S., have shown themselves to be the enemies of the masses of African people, which is why, which is why I think subconsciously uh, most Africans don't, uh, uh, don't participate in the in the electoral process. And uh, it should be pointed out that uh, that uh, among some of our revolutionaries, voting was seen as a tool. Not, uh, not 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 to be an end all of uh, political participation, but as a tool to try to achieve a certain level of justice and liberation, and uh, that was the essence of uh, the Black Power movement, and uh, the goal had been political empowerment, which is why. Uh, the Africans in Missis- in Alabama formed the Lowndes County Freedom, uh, you, you know, party, which led to, uh, uh, to to Black Panther Party offshoots all over the world. And uh, so we have to form our own political organizations. Historically, Africans have made the error of going into coalitions with other people without having our own agenda defined. And because we won't follow our agenda, we, 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 we get pushed every which way by the other forces that, uh, that we think are in our corner but really aren't. So we have to form our own independent political organizations. The highest expression of that is the political party. And uh, and it's not a question of uh, of uh, doing this versus putting food on the food on the table. We have to do all of it. And um, you know, and uh, you know, uh, take a step by step, depending upon what your situation is. Some people have more time than others. Some people have more flexible schedules than others. But the thing is, though, we have to form our own political organization before we go into coalition with someone else. And that's a mistake we've made historically. Yeah, I don't think the issue is that, you know, that we stop strategizing. I mean, one thing is you got to understand, this is a very protracted struggle, and it's very intricate. And so how we go about, you know, dealing with the problem that we're confronted with it's going to vary. So we, so we don't discount strategy. So that means if you can find progressive individuals who, who would get the message out there in terms of employing an organization, in terms of self-dependency or, or whatever, then those are the kind of people that you certainly would want to bring into office, whether it be the local, national, or state level. Uh, so strategy is extremely important. But you mentioned something about the NFL. I think it was very interesting. You talk about the low numbers. Now be careful about, be careful about that. 
So one of the things that one of, one one of the things that the NFL want people to believe that the attendance is low. In other words, they they want to to pressure athletes not to take stand when it comes to controversial issues like police brutality. But more importantly, it has an economic uh, 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 probably economic uh, uh, um, um, port, um, pertinence to it, and that is. That one of the things, if you can convince people that the viewership, I mean that the viewership is low, then you can justify paying people the lower salaries in terms of NFL. So we got to be very, very careful in terms of simply reading something and concluding that what we read is in fact, in fact legit. So uh, and now, now in with that. Any other comments, questions, concerns? As relates to this whole phenomenon, uh, how do we move forward? Ever since African arrival to the Western Hemisphere under the bondage of under capitalism, being enslaved, I think when Harold Cruz wrote the book, The Crisis Among the Negro Intellectual, we need all to go back and take another look at that. He raised a central question that all African people must answer, and we have not resolved that question yet historically. He stated that in essence, since we arrived in the Western Hemisphere, African people have been confronted with three choices as it relates to their role for liberation. How do we liberate and free ourselves and get ourselves from under all of these conditions, whether that be under conditions where we can eat, to be properly educated, or just being able to think for ourselves and develop according to our own lacking. He said that we have been under three. We have been faced with three roles in which we have not chosen what is the correct role to go collectively that will allow us our liberation. And these are the three choices we have historically has we have historically been confronted with, and we have not resolved that question collectively. He said, "Do African people stay here and integrate into the capitalist system and make it work for us, or do we stay here?" separate from the system, create an independent nation, and make that work for us? Or do we integrate and go back home to Africa and let that be the basis that will help us achieve our liberation and unification as a people? Those have historically been our three choices. Historically, we have always some kind of way produced leaders who have favored or fall under one of those three tendencies. But the question is, where is the masses on this question? Why does it have to be an either or? Why can't it be a combination? Well, I don't think I don't think when, when you say combination, I think it would be very difficult because some of these these choices we're talking about, from my understanding, look at the kind contradiction of how we arrive at our oppression, you couldn't do, it could be no combination of all of it. Because they will create certain contradictions against each other that will make it, you know, impossible to coexist. What I'm saying. If you look at the basis, right, let me let me raise this question. If you're a doctor, you know, a sovereign. Let me just raise this, raise this question in terms of logic to the point that you're raising. If you're a doctor and a patient comes to you and that patient is sick and trying to find a a, a, a remedy to his illness. One of the things the doctor do is he makes sure he won't know the history of you and that illness. What has been the history and the origin of that illness? Where did it begin? 
And once he found out the origin of where that illness began, that's where he perceived it started from, because that's the foundation. So I said to you in terms of that question, we got to ask ourselves and look at ourselves, what is the origin, what is the foundation of our enslavement and oppression? Where did it begin? Where you find the origin of it, and you deal with the origin at the beginning, then everything else will be put in its proper perspective. The, the suffering we incur, folks, Africans here who don't have food, it can't be disconnected with, and it must be understood as a linkage, as a process, as the end result of African people being displaced, taken away from their home all over the world, and their home being colonized. That is the origin. So when we talk about theoretically, talk about coming up with conceptions and solutions, we got to look at history and well, the basis. Okay, let's take a look at the continent. So that's what I'm saying. Start. You can't talk about integrating the stand Hill because even the nature of the yes. system, this system being created, yes. has been created and has been subsidized by it existing to continue to control and support Africa. That's why the system, this is one basis of how it came about. So when you talk about easy or why can't be all three, if you look at how these issues arose, it will create problems to say, you know, we can do all three. But anyway, that's my response to your but, question. Go ahead. Okay. That's one, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that this is um, a complex situation, complex problem, and and on the spectrum of how do you get from A to Z, you know, it, it may be a way to look at that a little bit differently as opposed to, and I hear what you're saying, and are you thinking that it, it began with uh, – with the slavery of the um, Americas, the European, to this country, or would you take it as far back to um, the Arabs in in uh, um, Middle Ages slavery? I'm not quite sure. I'd take we take about farther than that, where the contradiction okay. where exploitation began to arise in Africa by men and women is the beginning point. Oppression of human beings. That's part of the class stuff. And so then you would say that, okay, it will be completely no movement in terms of people of uh, different places and countries. I'm not sure what you raised well, in the I'm context of I guess no inter, no intermingling, no business, no exports, no imports, just. No, I'm not saying yeah. that. I'm not saying that. Okay. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I'm uh, saying this to you. I'll let someone else, let someone else come in. I, I'll say this to you. I'll let someone else come in. Just, let's us just take a look at and do some research on the history and development of the concept of Pan-Africanism, what that is, what that means, and how they can be uh, relevant today. That's it in terms of that point. The other people come in and interject whatever they want to say. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would say that, um, that 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 actually that that the roots that Africa's problem started inside Africa uh, at some point in African history, and I can't give an exact date to it because it's a process. Communalism gave way to slavery. And 
and uh, there was uh, this, um, and uh, the conditions under which it started was that a certain uh, segment of society started producing a surplus. And uh, in other words, they produced more of a particular product than actually needed and had enough left over to sell or trade, uh, if you will, and uh, get uh, in order to get more of another particular product. And uh, this gave way to other uh, uh, to another social formation, other than a communal society. It gave rise to an exploitative society, and um, eventually, as African societies grew, they began to uh, to migrate to other parts of Africa and other parts of the world. Now, we're talking about a process that took place over several thousands of years. And, uh, and, uh, and also, um, I would add, just to cut a long story short, that, uh, that uh, let's see, that this land, that the, the various lands that Africans, you know, migrated to, uh, you know, were occupied by other people. Now, when you had the human trafficking that intensified under Asians and Europeans during the Roman and, uh, uh, let's see, Ottoman empires and various other empires and what have you, Africans were brought to an area that was occupied by the so-called American Indian. The Western Hemisphere is still their land. Even though all the movies out of Hollywood and the media may make it seem otherwise. And uh, Martin Luther King had a saying that uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that, and our history certainly proves that. So, uh, so, 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 so the, the say, the, 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 the say that the uh, North and South America are our land is incorrect historically, and it's unjust because it does a disservice uh, to the uh, so-called American Indian. And we wouldn't want other people claiming our land as, as their own when it really belongs to us. Okay, panelists, uh, what we're going to do right now, we run out of time, what we're going to do right now, and because of the nature of the discussion, we would like to remind people that um, uh, after the last individual do their final closing for the night, we will again go back to um, the role of history. We often play tape at the end of some of our programs in terms of Lessons from the 60s, 70s, 80s by Kwame Ture. He, he talks about many of the things we raised tonight. We're going to follow this program with, 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 with one of those presentations. So we'd like for you to you know, listen to it, and maybe next time we can continue the discussion. But what we're going to do right now, we only have a few minutes left. We're going to have our final closing thoughts for the night. And we will 
pick up next week where we will discuss the theme that was scheduled for today, U.S. policies, lives, and monies. This will be a continuation for next week's program. So panelists, participants, we thank you for your feedback tonight. We're going to ask each one of y'all one minute or less. Just give us your final thoughts for tonight. As it relates to this whole question of what lessons can we learn from Bill Cosby and what has been stated tonight. We'll start off tonight. We'll start off with you, Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for tonight. Well, we, as Brother Anthony points out, uh, class struggle developed in Africa, and uh, and it's and it's this is a ultimately a, a class issue, uh, um, um, and you know we have to have a, 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 a get to the essence of, of this problem. Um, and so you know. It's been an interesting show. I've learned stuff. Uh, um, racism is still alive in, in, in America, and uh, it, it, it continues, and we we have to struggle against it and all the isms, sexism. And uh, I, I look forward to another show. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Brother Moses. Um, we're going to ask Sister, Sister Angela, you'll find it to us for tonight. Thank you for um, letting me join and have a voice on the platform. I appreciate it. I'm going to ask all of you to visit my website. It's financialunity.org. The keyword is unity. And so I um, just wanted to unite with you, brothers and Sister Hattie, tonight in thought and in spirit. And, um, you know, just keep moving it forward in, in the spirit of oneness. So, hey, thank you. you. Give me your website again, sister. Say the name of your website again. It, it's financialunity, F-I-N-A-N-C-I-A-L, unity. It's all one word, dot O-R-G, dot org. Okay. And we just relaunched it, and uh, we would love for you all to become unity brokers. And, um, you know, just subscribe to our newsletter. All right, thank you. Thank you for your contribution to today's program, sister. Okay, let's go to Brother Sister Hattie. You'll find it to us for tonight. Okay, thank you. It's been a very, very good show, and it's it's always good to learn more and to understand more, and I really appreciate that. So um, I just wanted to say, Sister Angela, I'm, I'm gonna send. I'm, I want to know where I can send my ten dollars a month. I'm ready to try anything at this point. <laughs> and then I also wanted to just invite people to uh, call in to Women United at 202-907-3514 if they know of a black woman who is 90 years old and up. We are willing to travel to interview her. We could do phone interview, whatever she is uh, comfortable with. And thank you very, very much. And we're definitely uh, here to support women. Wisdom is the key. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Hattie, for your contribution to tonight's program. And we next we'll go to Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that um is that the solution to our problems are are ultimately Political. 
Pan-Africanism is the ultimate solution to the problems facing us, and that we must have the unity and liberation of Africa under a scientific socialist government to bring about the freedom of Africans worldwide. Our website for more information is www.a-aprp-gc.org and uh, join an organization. We've got to get better organized. Thank you, Brother Abby, for your contribution to today's program. And we now we'll go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, African Women's Association, we're doing a Black History Educational and Culture Tour to Cuba. We're going to Montanza, Trinidad, and Havana. The trip takes place December 27th to January 3rd, 2019. For more information, contact us at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or visit our website at www.aaa-cubatours.com. And I just want to take my head off to the sisters because without sisters, there's no struggle. And I really appreciate the fact that they brought in, you know, various elements in terms of really facilitating a deeper discussion in terms of the issues that we're confronted with as a community. And I thank the sisters so very, very much. And Brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki. We'd like to thank all our participants, our listening audience, and those who listen to Africa on the Moon and share the information with our network. We'd like to thank you all for your support and remind you that every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, yes, you can go on Blog Talk Network and type in Africa on the Move, and you can listen and participate. The purpose of this program is to raise information issues that are affecting our people and give a better understanding ideologically, a better understanding of the clarity or the clearness that we need for understand problems. And the only way we can do that. If you have these kind of discourse, you know, this is what this is all about. If you have any particular subject, ideas you'd like to convey to our people, please feel free to email us at AfricaOnTheMood2 at gmail. And we'd love to have you on as a guest. Until next time, what we're going to do is we're going to go to Mother Africa, find the song Mother Africa. We're going to play Brother Kwame Teray, particularly the day right? We're going to talk about some of the issues that were raised in this context of discussion tonight on lessons from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and why we must learn this. So again, continue to support us, and remember that without information you cannot think, and what organization you cannot think clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that's doing something for your people. The greatest contradiction that is facing African people today is that we are disorganized. We need to be organized. The only way you can be organized is you must be in an organization doing something actively in terms of trying to alleviate the oppression, the oppression of your people, oppression of your people. Until next time, Brother Sister Ria Siri, we're going to Mother Africa. Then we're going to put on Brother Kwame Ture as he's on lessons from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We thank you for your support, and let's continue to go forward with Apple. Backwards level.
you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the early, late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance 
All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly 
properly underlined for you, once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. <laughs> Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. 
Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Uh, the students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. 
The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this 
position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hand in hand with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside of there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with 3 million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe 3 million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. 
He said, no, I'll tell you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Because <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness. If you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes, yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point here. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. Of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? 
But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the Claire Poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah, Botswana, so let us speak about the motherland. 
Cause the fire 